Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. How we doing? Doing pretty well. We uh, getting our Christmas shopping done, hopefully. Uh, probably not all the way done, especially you guys. You're like, Christmas isn't it like still, you know, months away? And no, it's like two weeks away, um, which is kind of scary. So I hope you guys are doing well. I'm Tim Jacobs, lead pastor here at Compass Church. And um, a few, about a month ago, I was in California at, um, in the Riverside area, Riverside National Cemetery. I am a um, chaplain in the Air Force Reserve, and we have a bunch of chaplains from around the country who had shown up for kind of a little uh, conference, and we went and did a variety of things. And one of the things that we did was we went to the Riverside National Cemetery, which is actually the, the busiest national cemetery in the country, even more so than Arlington. And uh, so we were there, and th- they have this beautiful... Uh, memorial to the Medal of Honor recipients, those who had displayed unusual acts of valor and courage in, in battle. And so they have all of the names of the of these recipients etched into the wall, kind of like the Vietnam Memorial, kind of the way that that looks. And, and there's a beautiful kind of little found area in the middle. And, and so we were just taking time looking at this and and it starts all the way back from the Civil War, so you kind of make your way around, and it's really fascinating to see not just the, the major wars that you think of, but all these little smaller kind of conflicts and things that you may not even know unless you really study history that we were in, even involved with, and it's kind of this continuous section of, of names and names and column after column of names, and, and so I'm, I'm over with a couple other guys, and we were looking at the, at the World War I section, and, and all of a sudden, it kind of sandwiched in between all these names is this inscription that just simply says, unknown, but to God. In fact, I, I took a picture of it. And we were all kind of going, how does that work? I mean, how do you have a wall that's supposed to commemorate, memorialize people, and then have a, an anonymous Per- person up there. I don't understand, like, like, how in the world does that work? And so the other guys didn't know, and so I went and grabbed the tour guide, and I, I asked him, I said, well, how, how can you have, well, what does this mean, unknown? I mean, isn't it the whole point to, to uh, have people that you can remember? And he said, well, what happened in this situation, most likely, was that there was this uh, a battle or something going on in, in, in World War I, and, and the, uh, this guy did something that was observed by other troops to be so courageous and so key and so important, but what happened was he probably got blown up so badly or shot up so badly or hit with a mortar or something like that so that they saw what he did, but they don't know who it was. And all they know is it was somebody who did. They said, we don't even know who it was. For the life of us, we can't remember. But whatever, whoever it was, we know that that was something that needed to be done. That was something that was so beyond courageous and beyond important and beyond um, critical that he earned himself this anonymous inscription of unknown but to God. And I thought about that. As this person who basically said they, they did what needed to be done. And I thought about that in, in a world that is so hungry for recognition for anything and everything, even the most small, insignificant things of life. You know, you, you can actually, with your phone, you can Snapchat your entire way through your life. 
You really can. You're like, look, everybody, I'm eating salmon, you know? And you can take a picture of it, and people are like, wow, you're eating salmon? I had salmon last night, you know? Oh, that's great. I don't even like salmon. And it's like, never has more attention been paid to acts of such utter insignificance in all of history. Isn't that true? It's like, who cares? But we have this, this world right now that is fascinated with attention and, and, and recognition and making sure that you know, everyone knows me without ever saying what's really and truly significant. And in the midst of all that, at the same time, we have in our series what we would call the gift. And the greatest gift ever to be given to humanity is the gift of Jesus Christ because he became one of us, and he did, more than anything else, he did what needed to be done. And when he did it, hardly anyone ever noticed. But he did what needed to be done. You see, there are all kinds of people out there who want to know who is God? If there is a God, if he does exist, then how can we possibly know what he is like? And so we speculate, and it's almost like your opinion against mine. It's almost like, well, no one really knows. I mean, how can we really have any true idea? Isn't it just up to the individual person to make their own speculation about the kind of God that there would be, if there even is one? And I guess as I stand here today and talk to you, I wonder, can we do any better than that? Can we do any better than just this kind of mild, um, kind of fuzzy, hazy speculation? Or can we know some things for sure about the very heart and nature of God? I think that we can. In fact, we believe that God did make himself known in a very real and crystal clear way that is unmistakable and undeniable that you can trust in fully and completely. And he did it in the most bizarre way by actually becoming a baby. He showed up as a baby. I don't really, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of babies. I mean, they're cute and everything. No, they are. I mean, even my own babies, I was like, oh, they're really cute, but I'm like, can't wait until they grow up a little more, you know? And then I have to like, you know, but I know they're baby babies. They're very cute. They're very cute. So I, I don't mean that bad. But, but, you know, I mean, I just, when they're screaming and crying and all around you and stuff like that, kind of when they're in the movie theater and that kind of thing, or God forbid they're in church. Um, but... <laughs> But they're not anymore. You guys have been amazing. So thank you. You guys are awesome. But you know what I'm saying? But, but, but as a baby and all the issues that come along with a baby, you know, and it's like you got to feed him and change him. And like God chose to show up as a baby. Why would he do that? Why in the world would we even believe that? And the answer I can give you is this. Because that's what needed to be done. That's what needed to be done. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. It's in the, kind of towards the back in the New Testament. And as you're turning there, you know, I don't know about you, but it seems like we so casually, especially around Christmas, we'll say, well, Christmas is about God becoming man. And it is. We say, well, Christmas, God became man. But if you're like me, and you've been around church for a while, and even I've been guilty of this, you say, well, God became man. Isn't that great? And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. And it's almost like the curse of familiarity. You've heard it so many times, you've heard, you, you, you're, you're aware of it, you've been so exposed to it, but, but does it really move you? Does it move you to worship? Does it move you to wonder? 
And if we're honest, a lot of times it just doesn't because I think we've heard it so much and we go, yeah, okay. And, and not only that, but do we really understand the implications of it? Do we really understand what it means for God to become one of us? For God to become man? Do we really understand that in a way that moves us? And so, in this passage, I would like us to look at this and then spend the remainder of our time really breaking down the implications of what does it mean for God to become man? And why should it rock you in your soul? So this is what it says, starting with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I want to give you five things that, implications of that, five things that Jesus would have to willingly embrace if he was truly to become the God-man. If God was to truly come down and visit us as one of us, what are five things out of that passage that Jesus would have to just willingly embrace and go after and we think about the implications of that? Number one, Jesus willingly embraced obscurity. Obscurity. This is the opposite of being popular on social media. This is the opposite of being well-known. This is the opposite of being famous. You see, it says, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And another way of saying grasped is claimed or taken a hold of. Now don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. He never stopped being God. The, the, the God has always existed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that Trinity that we can't understand because we're not like that. We, we are one. But we're not, we can't take God and make him, you know, say, well, God's got to be just like us. God is revealed in three persons, right? So the God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God sends the Son. And when he sends him, basically, he sends him into obscurity. But please understand, he doesn't deserve that. In fact, as God, he has claim to the, being the most famous individual of all. The Bible says that he created the universe. He authored the universe, that all authority in the universe is given to him. In Matthew chapter 28, it says this, that he is in charge of everything, that everything belongs to him, that, that everybody should worship him. And yet he goes from that standing to, to placing himself into the care of a teenage girl and a bewildered husband. And he places himself in a situation where he goes from the being the, the one that angels praise to one where someone goes, who is that guy? Who does that, is that the son of that carpenter? And he's saying that, who does this guy think that he is? Who is this guy from Nazareth, that, that hick town? Nothing ever good comes out of that. That's the kind of, but that's what he had to do. That's what needed to be done. And so he embraced, he shunned popularity and fame. The fame that would be worthy of the God of the universe. And embraced obscurity, being unknown. And so the idea continues next. 
Not only did he embrace obscurity, number two, he embraced emptiness. He emptied himself. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a popular um, German theory that came out um, in the last century that was called the kenosis theory. It basically said that when he emptied himself, he gave up what you might call his omnis, right? His omnipresence, his omniscience, and his omnipotence. So his, his ability to be everywhere at once, his ability to know everything, and his ability to, uh, to be all-powerful. And, you know, the, the, that's a very popular theory, and there's nothing really wrong with that theory, but what it kind of basically says is, well, in emptying himself, he ba- it just basically means that he's, he's kind of coming to earth with one hand tied behind his back, you know? He's not quite as good as he was, you know, before he, before he incarnated himself and became one of us. So he's kind of fighting with one hand behind his back, and so he's kind of playing handicapped a little bit. And the first problem with that is it never, the Bible never really explicitly says that, number one. But number two, it actually does tell us what it means that he emptied himself because it's more than just a, a, a temporary disability. It's actually much deeper. It has far more dimensionality than just than, than that. He, when it says he emptied himself, it's much deeper and much more significant than just merely having some of his powers held back. So you say, well, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, it goes on to tell us. The verse tells us very clearly. And that's the third thing. When he emptied himself, it's this. He willingly embraced slavery. It says, by taking, so what, if you look at the verse, it says that he did not count equality with God something to be grass, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, the word servant does not mean server like at Chili's, you know, like here's your onion rings or whatever. It's, it's, it's much worse than that. The word servant in the Greek, in the original language, is actually the word doulos, which means slave. It means slave. Now, I'm kind of a word nerd. I, I, I kind of get into word. Like I, it's one of my favorite things when I prepare the messages is I don't, get, I don't spend like 80 hours looking at all this stuff, but I do like certain words, and I try to capture a certain word and go, okay, what is the essence of this word? And so I did a little study on the word doulos, and I found of all the stuff that I read, I, the one, most interesting thing I found was that this word being a Greek word had interesting implications to how the Greeks or the Romans would have heard it. So as a Greek word, um, it, it, you go back to ancient Greece, the, for the Greeks, their biggest um, point of, of pride in their culture was their freedom. They loved their freedom. They, their whole culture was defined by the fact that they did not have a, uh, a, a king. In fact, they fought off the king. You know, the, the, the movie 300, the whole story of the Spartans against the Persians, all that was were the 300 Spartans saying, we would rather die than, and, and die poor and die painful than live rich under a foreign king. That was the whole thing. Even the phrase, um, uh, however you pronounce it in Greek, molon, molon labe. Some of you military guys may have had that tattooed or you've seen that somewhere with the Greek letters. And that basically, where that comes from, that comes from that, that society and that thinking. In fact, King Leonidas of Sparta was the one who said to the Persian king, when, when uh, the Persian king said to King Leonidas, well, you know, we are more powerful than you guys, why don't you throw down your weapons? And King Leonidas says, if you want our weapons, why don't you come get them? And that's what that phrase means, come and get it. So it's a, it's a statement of defiance. We would rather die than be slaves. We will never live without self-determination. We are autonomous people. It doesn't mean that they didn't serve. They, they served, but that's different. They valued service. In fact, even the inscription, when you go to the Battle of Thermopylae, the inscription there says, tell all the Spartans, you who pass by, that here obedient to their laws we lie. 
So they had no problem subjecting themselves, but it was willing. This word doulos is not that. This is a, a surrendering of your own self-determination. This is, a, this is a concept that when they read the word doulos, when they read the word slave, because now Greek culture becomes Roman culture, and the Romans just kind of adopted, it kind of seeped, Greek culture seeps into Roman culture. These people would have read this and went, ugh, don't say that word. Oh, I hate that. Slave? Slave? He would have hated that. They would have hated that. And so it's the exact opposite of that concept. Now if you think about that for a moment, the concept of slave, we have a terrible history of slavery in our country. A terrible history. You know that for hundreds of years, millions of people spent their entire lives, they were born into slavery and they died in slavery. And they never once experienced their own self-determination. They never once experienced the joy of being able to go their own way and do what they wanted to do in the eyes of God. And I was thinking about justice. You know, we always talk about justice. And we have to be honest that in this life, you know, you can work for justice, but you can't, you can't ever totally make everything just. And so the only hope that we can have is in the, is in the next life. And I was thinking about this concept of Christ being a slave and giving up his, his place of self-determination and, and subjecting himself to the Father's will and taking that form, taking that nature of a slave. And I thought about the slaves in our country who, who were they to die and they spent their lives believing in Jesus. That when they awake, they see a Savior to whom they can look into the, his eyes and he's been there. He's been there. And I just think that, that there will be a special kinship that none of us will ever know. Because Jesus sank to depths that none of us ever will. None of us ever will. And these people who live their lives under the brutal decisions and actions of others will be able to see a God who knows their pain and knows their place and lived it. There is no other faith that colors in a picture of God like that. And I love the fact that the people who are at the bottom of society will in many ways be closest to the Savior's heart because he knows what it was to come as a slave, to not do what he wanted to do, to not do what he could have done, but to live in subjection under the rules and laws of humanity and to do what he didn't want to do, but what needed to be done. The fourth thing, when we say he gave up his autonomy, his right of self-determination, in a sense. What do we mean by that? Number four, he embraced our plight. He embraced our plight. He says, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Now, this is the second way. So how did he, how did he empty himself? It's not just like, you know, oh, I'm not as powerful as I once was when I was in heaven. No, no, no. It's, it's, he emptied himself by becoming a slave, 
And then next, by taking on the likeness of men. So when we're talking about that, he became one of us. And this is the crazy thing about Jesus is, you know, when you think about what love is, so often the antithesis of that is we have, when you have a person that looks at someone who's struggling and they say, you know what, that's not my problem. And I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase being said to you, or you've heard someone say it to someone else, or maybe you yourself have said, hey, you know what, that's not my problem. I've said it a lot. It's not my problem. And when I read this, and I see that Jesus takes on the likeness of men, what I read is that Jesus made our problems his problem. He made what it's like to be a human and the struggle and the, the implication of death and the knowing that it's in front of you and the knowing that you have to give up this body someday and the feeling of, 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 this, of the challenges of, of being cold and, and, and hungry and tired and afraid and lonely and rejected to take all of that, that he could have easily said, you know what, that's your problem. God could have said, that's your problem. And our God said, I'm going to make your problem my problem. I'm going to live exactly as you lived. And so this is why it's so critical, my wonderful, beloved brothers and sisters, that we never, ever lose our understanding that God, that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. Not 50% man, not part man. Not, well, you know, he was just kind of God in a bod. You know what I mean? He just like, he was kind of God in the shell of a person. He had some weird kind of robotic kind of person. No, no, no. He was just as you and I are. He he felt everything you and I feel. He took on the likeness of men, our nature as well, because he wanted to make our problem his problem. And you have to ask yourself the question, what does that say about God? And as I was studying for this, the, the thought hit me that when God created us, he created us in his image. But in order to save us, he had to be made in our image. And that's not a promotion. That's not a promotion. And when you think about that, I don't know about you, but when you really consider that this is the kind of God, so when you wonder, well, I wonder who's out there, I wonder who's really, I wonder who's really moving the pieces on the chessboard. This is the kind of individual who is moving the pieces on the chessboard. This is the kind of individual who brought you into existence, who sustains your life. It's the kind of individual who loves you so much that he takes on your nature and makes your problem his problem. And that should move you to worship. That should move you to wonder. That should move you to a place where you say, you know, everything else that I could put my attention to is kind of stupid. This is deep. This is rich. This is like, this is powerful. And this deserves my wide-eyed attention. And why did he do that? Because it's what was needed to be done. That leads me to the fifth thing that we can get. The fifth thing that Jesus would have to embrace in order to become man. And the fifth thing is this humiliation. It's very interesting language, this next verse. Verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that last phrase is really important. Because 
You know, a person who willingly goes and dies for someone else, they would have to be in a place of humility. It takes humility to, to give up your life for someone else, but that's different than humiliation. See, if Paul had just said, hey, he, he died for us, and we're like, wow, that's great. But how he died is really significant. Because Paul is saying, you know, he, he made, made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. And again, these people reading this going, oh. Because crucifixion was the most, not only most painful and brutal way to die, and still is, it is the most humiliating way to die. Because in that culture, when you were crucified, it meant a complete repudiation of that individual. The society completely rejects you. You are the lowest of the low. This is why they would hang the people on the crosses on the outskirts of the city. So when the foreigners would come in, they would say basically the message is, this is what we are capable of doing to people who cause trouble here. This is how far we are willing to go. We will not only murder you, we will humiliate you. We will leave nothing left for you. We will completely destroy you to the soul level. So do not mess with us. That's the message. And on top of that, we know that Jesus died as an innocent man. And you and I all know how we strike back when we are falsely accused. You accuse me of something I didn't do, I'll tell you what, man. That now, now I'm really mad. If I did it, I'll, I'll cop to it, but you, you, I didn't do it, right? Because there better be justice. So here's the, the only innocent man who ever lived dying the most humiliating death ever known to man. How's that work? Embraced humiliation. You know, I was just reading, there was an execution that happened a couple, like last week, and it was in Alabama, and they, they didn't do it right, and the t- guy took like a half hour to die, and you know, was, you know, like wheezing and all this terrible stuff. They keep trying to pump him full of drugs to kill him. It's kind of a sad thing. And, but here's a guy who himself was a murderer, and yet even our culture would say, even someone who does something like that, we still value the individual. We still value the life of the human. So we, if we're going to execute them, we want to execute them in a humane way. We don't want them to, we don't want to torture them. We don't want to brutalize them. There's a, there's a human nature factor here that wasn't in play back then. They didn't think about that kind of stuff. In fact, it was the other way. It's how long can we draw this out? But this is why we believe this is so important. The same fear that you would have of being falsely accused. The same fear, the same terror of facing death. He felt that. The same fear of rejection. He felt that, in fact, even to a greater degree because he would have this dimension of understanding being both God and man. And so when he's hanging on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's this picture of, of the father just turning away from the son when the son becomes sin and bears that, bears that weight, bears that sin in our place. And Jesus Christ was the loneliest man in all of the universe, in all of human history. Because to date, he was the only one to whom God said, I'm not looking. And why? Because that's what needed to be done. You see, Jesus didn't see your sin and failures and walk away. He took your sin and your failures and your challenges and your hopelessness, and he made it his problem. 
He made your problem his problem. And when he did that, when he, we, when he, when he died on that cross, the gift was, this was God rescuing you. This was God stepping in for you. This was God re- completely saving you from, from, the, from eternity past to eternity future. There is no reason for you to ever, ever fear judgment by God because Jesus has assumed all of it. That's crazy. And the, you know the biggest problem with us is it's like we've heard this kind of thing so much that we have to be reintroduced and reintroduced. You know, the staff um, teased me because I made a little rule that um, whenever our little MC, whoever comes out, whether it's Dave or somebody else comes out, and talk, like you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to use the word reminder because <laughs> like to me, they would say that was a great, that sermon, that was a great reminder. Always kind of like, it bugs me because a reminder is like, you know, a dentist appointment on Thursday, right? This is a reminder. You have a dentist appointment. Like this is no big deal. But it's like, no, our sermons aren't supposed to be reminders. Our sermons are supposed to be like mind blowers from the standpoint of, I've never, I've, maybe I've heard this before, but never like this. I've, I've never, I've maybe heard this, but I've never been, I've never seen it quite like this. That when you hear this, when we discover God, it's not just, you know, so we'd be like, okay, that's good, thanks, because I, I kind of forgotten about the whole Jesus thing. It's like, no, whoa, are you serious? God really did this for me. This is the truth. This is who God, when I studied for this message, I wasn't reminded of stuff I already knew. I was thinking blown away by the grace of my Savior once again. I'm in Starbucks and I'm typing this thing and I'm like starting to tear up. I'm like, I got to back off a little bit here. You know, it's like, oh, I got spicy coffee. I'm sorry. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm like, oh, um, because I'm sitting there going, God, who are you? Who are you that you would do this? And then this verse, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what's my point? My point is if you're here today and you haven't embraced this, God, I get it if you haven't embraced religion. I get it if you grew up in some lame church with a bunch of politics and stupidity and you never really, you, no one ever showed you a Jesus like this. They just kind of spoke in, in you know, kind of just generalities and, and axioms or, or just uh, kind of sayings that, that didn't really penetrate your soul. But, but I'm telling you today, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, why would you not do that? Are you going to find a better God? You're going to worship something. You will worship something, even if it's yourself. And if you think you are better than this, then, you know, we've got more problems than, than you know. But here's the point. Why would you not embrace this God who loves you? Why would you not embrace this understanding of a God whose heart is so rich and full? Every knee will bow. At some point or another. Even, even, doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved and willingly embrace this, but everyone's going to go, at some point, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's the one. He's worthy. I didn't get it. I didn't want it. I just still don't even care. But I can't deny. Can't deny. So what are the implications of this, briefly? Because it's not just a, you know, hey, this and this is great, and let's move on. What do we do with this? You see, Jesus isn't just some passive, kind of soft-spoken guy who just kind of walked around, walked around and said, oh, just peace on earth, and no, let's not be violent. Let's not be unkind to it. Let's all just kind of just power down and just kind of hang out. And 
you know, let's not get too wound up. That wasn't Jesus. You had Jesus that charged into earth and rescued people who had no hope for themselves because that's what needed to be done. And so the challenge I'm calling you to is this. Number one, I'm challenging you to follow in his steps. Look what it says in 1 Peter. It says, For this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He suffered for you. Why? Well, to rescue you, but also so that you would follow in his steps. So guys, I want to talk to you. Men, I want to talk to you. Every single one of you men, you have an area of responsibility. That's another little military term, but, but you have a field of responsibility to tend to that belongs to you. And you need to tend to that field. You need to take responsibility for that area of your, of your life that you have responsibility over. And you need to do what needs to be done. Manliness is stepping in to the life of your wife and listening to her and reminding her of the love of Jesus and loving her. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter five, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Manliness is not walking around like I'm autonomous and independent and I don't, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to do nothing for nobody. No, manliness is giving yourself up for the people that God has placed in your life to stick up for and defend and do what needs to be done. And if that means cleaning up the crap in your own life, you better clean up the crap in your own life because you can't be the man that your, your wife and your kids need you to be until you do that. So stop making excuses for yourself. Stop walking around going, well, I just don't know what to do. It's not my problem. You know, this, you have to make your, you have to make the problems of the people in your life your problem. And by doing that, that means I need to surrender some of the things in my life that I've been setting up as little gods. I need to surrender the things that have been strangling me. And I need to become the man God wants me to be and God made me to be. That's what you need to do. And that, that involves looking at yourself and saying, how do I follow in the footsteps of Jesus? You know, it's an amazing thing here at Compass. We have this, um, I was at a wedding two days ago, and uh, it, was, it was awesome because I was sitting and I was looking at the wedding, the bridal party, and our youth pastor, Mike, performed the wedding. And I was looking at the bride and the groom and the bridal party. I realized that, that up there, there were five couples Five couples represented in that bridal party, including the bride and the groom, who had all met each other here at Compass Church and married in the last several years, and I think all of them were 28 and down. Most of them 25 and down. And there's something going on here at Compass Church. But I'll tell you what's going on. I'll just tell you what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on at Compass Church. Women will walk around going, you know, where did all the good men go? They're coming here. Because I got to tell you, I mean, and I was giving the guys a hard time. I went up to the, to, to the table and I said, guys, no offense, but, but you guys married way up. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm serious. Like, like the other pastors, like, we're like, wow, wow. I mean, it's, it's not a joke. I mean, they're married well. How did you do that? Um, and, and how? Because, there, because there's, we have young men here who are, who are being godly men and who are being trained and challenged to have an area of responsibility and tend to that field. And they have women who fall in love with that and trust that. And God brings beauty into their lives that way. 
That's what we need. And that's why I'm like so passionate about this stuff. Now on to the women, because I'm an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) The reason that Jesus did all of these things, humiliation, slavery, obscurity, the reason is because you're worth it. You are worth it. You, little you, who needs to be a little bit, a few pounds lighter and wish your hair was a little bit like this and, you know, all this stuff, all this self-criticism in the mirror, all the self-criticism that comes from the wholesale buying of everything the culture tells you about how you should be. The God of the universe wanted you to know you are worth his whole life. So what are you reading? What are you watching? What voices are you believing? And who are you settling for? Whose voices are you calling truth? Because I love you guys. But you guys, you guys are beautiful and you're wallowing in the mud. And it doesn't look right. It doesn't, it isn't, it isn't right. You stand with your head held high and you believe what God says about you. That you are valuable beyond all comparison. That you are worth every drop of blood that our Savior spilled for you. And that you have been rescued and that you have been loved and that you have been redeemed because you are worth it. And you, some of you ladies, need to do a major repentance job of, in your life to say, I am going to clear out all of this crap that I've been believing about where my worth and value comes from. And I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus who has loved me from eternity past. And he is who brings me value. Every man in your life may have failed you except one. This is good stuff, huh? Yeah. I just, it just fires me up. But unfortunately, I'm out of time. So, this is our gauntlet, guys. This is our gauntlet. This is, this is our God. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Follow Jesus and believe everything that he said about you. Follow Jesus and believe everything he said about you. That's it. That's all you can do. Because at the end of the day, Bullets flying, fog of war, critical situation, all this craziness. Our God stepped up and jumped in and did what needed to be done. And he is worthy of our praise. Let's bow our heads. If you're here today, I just, you're being called to something real. You're being called to something rich. You're being called to something that is not just a simple three-step process, but this is a multi-dimensional. This is a, this is an all-encompassing reality. And so please do not enter into this lightly, but if you are here today and you're saying, you know what? I need to surrender my life to my Savior, 
today. I need to believe that there's a God who did this, that this is his heart, that this is who we, God, if this is who you are, then I am yours. If this is who you are, then I am yours. You tell him that right now. If this is who you are, then I am yours. And I surrender my life to you, and I regret every day that I've spent on this planet living apart from you and your ways and your love and your goodness and your grace. But from this day forward, God, I do not promise you that I will be perfect, but I promise you that you have my heart. And this kind of love, this kind of grace is something that I will embrace and I will follow and I will model in my life. If you got the guts to pray that, then pray it. But it is not for the weak of heart. It is not for the timid. It is for those who can look square in the eye at grace and their own sin and be moved deeply. Thank you, God, that because you became one of us, you give us a model to follow. Thank you for the men in here, for what you're doing at this church, how they've, they've brought so much joy to so many ladies, and thank you for the ladies here who are living beautiful lives of faith. God, knock down our, our idols and our demons. Knock down the things that would draw us away from you and keep us from becoming all you've meant us to be. God, you are so powerful, and you're so good, and you are worthy of our utmost affection and attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.